if you are trading right now, if you're somebody that's trading your own stocks, I've got a secret weapon for you. My friends at Carnivore Trading, they think the market's actually on the verge of some historic gains this year. Put aside the realities of the of the Biden administration and all that for just a second, because the market can have what's called a melt up period where there's just so much money sloshing around so many people involved that you can see huge gains in certain sectors. That's why you want experts guiding your trades. Carnivore trading is an elite squad of strategists. I'm getting text messages and trades from them all day long. They influence major Wall Street investors. And if you sign up with them, they'll send you to your phone text messages that have real-time trading information that they want you to engage in so you can get some big gains too. You mirror their trades with your discount broker or pass, but why would you pass when their trades routinely crush the S&P 500? And here's their guarantee. You'll earn five times your monthly subscription or double your money back. That's right, five times the subscription fee you pay every month just by mirroring their trades. The market could be on the verge of this massive upswing any day now. Get off the sidelines, mirror carnivores trades today. Right now, you'll get two weeks free. That's right, two weeks free. Just visit GetOurTrades.com and use promo code BUCK. That's the website, GetOurTrades.com, promo code BUCK. See website for guaranteed terms and conditions, past performance, not a guarantee of future earnings. You're in the Freedom Hut. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Get the latest from Buck at BuckSexton.com. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton with you all week. Loving it, appreciating it, and thanks so much for taking the time to listen in. If you haven't heard me before, I'm the deputy editor at Real Clear Investigations, a senior contributor at The Federalist. You can also read me in Newsweek and the Epic Times. Last year, I came out with my first book, which seems to be ever relevant, at least looking at what's in the headlines today, American Ingrate, Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democratic Party, which has predicted this radical takeover of that party that's on full display every single minute of every single day today. Please follow me on Twitter at BH Weingarten. You can keep up with all of my work at weingarten.substack.com. And before we jump into today's episode, and we have a heck of an episode today, we've got Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin lined up to talk about January 6th and all things the national security and law enforcement apparatus. We've got Charles Murray, someone who would probably be canceled today, but they tried to cancel him 30 years ago and couldn't do it. And he still stands athwart history yelling, stop the insanity to talk about a new book he has on race. So very excited to discuss that. And then we'll also talk a little bit later in the show with Mark Hemingway, who has done some incredible work exposing the racket that is the woke industrial complex, so to speak. Before we jump into all of that, just a quick programming note. The Clay Travis and Buck Sexton show will start next Monday, the 21st at noon. And then Jesse Kelly will be filling this 6 to 9 p.m. slot starting the following Monday, June 28th. All right, with all that out of the way, I want to start with something that I think is a fitting prelude to the conversation that we'll have with Senator Ron Johnson, the Republican from Wisconsin, a bit later in the show today. And that's the biggest news story that almost no one is talking about that took place yesterday. While everyone is focused, and we'll talk a little bit about this later, on Joe Biden's embarrassing performance overseas as his handlers clutch his hands ever more tightly as he reads on with his cue cards and gets mocked and trolled by Vladimir Putin 
and goes right back to the America is back vision of America last, our adversaries first, put the world in front of the interests of the American people, screw national sovereignty, screw our economy, screw the energy industry, which has been really the only growing sector in this country for years, in spite of everything that the Obama-Biden team did to forestall it. And of course, we can talk a little bit about Nord Stream 2, open, Keystone Pipeline closed, and on and on, and all the insanity. But look at what's going on domestically that no one is really talking about today, and that is probably more important for our liberty and justice today and in the future than anything else this administration is doing or saying. Yesterday, the Biden administration revealed its new national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. This is a seminal document as part of the rolling exploitation of January 6th, the attempt to paint potentially up to half the country as not only racists and bigots who have no place, should have no place in the public square, but that they actually ought to have the full force of the public and private sectors coming down to bear on all of us, potentially, if we run afoul of the ruling class party line. So I want to delve into some of the substance of that report. And we previewed this yesterday, but I had a chance to read through the roughly 30-page document. And really what you need to read is the last few pages of it. Because what it shows is that everything is on the line today in terms of our liberty and justice. And this administration imperils it to an unprecedented extent. I mean, this was all hidden And not out in the open until the last four years where we saw what happens when the national security, intelligence and law enforcement apparatuses all get weaponized against what they perceive to be a threat to their power and privilege, namely Donald Trump and anyone in his orbit. But Trump was just the first domino they wanted to topple. It was the tens of millions of people behind him that they really seek to chill, silence, dissent and crush. And what this countering domestic terrorism strategy shows is that the administration is going full bore in this effort. So the first thing you have to ask is, who poses this tremendous threat to the homeland that the Biden administration claims exists? You know, they never provide us. They'll provide us with cherry-picked anecdotes, data points, but they never point to you How many people are we talking about in America constitute domestic violent extremists? What they do say, if you look back at the Office of Director of National Intelligence's unclassified assessment, which was the part of the basis of this countering domestic terrorism strategy, their domestic violent extremism poses heightened threat in 2021 report says that domestic violent extremists with quote-unquote, motivations pertaining to biases against minority populations and, quote-unquote, perceived government overreach will be the primary drivers of domestic terrorism in the coming year. As my friend Kyle Scheidover notes at the Center for Security Policy when he analyzed that assessment, which is, again, the basis of this whole domestic terrorism report, the language deliberately excludes any potential threat from what the FBI used to call Black identity extremists, presumably focusing solely on white supremacists. 
an assessment that completely ignores any threat of violence from so-called black identity extremists following the 2020 BLM riots cannot be taken seriously. Those riots led to the deaths of dozens and caused more than $2 billion in property damage. Leaked FBI assessments from 2018 to 2019 showed that the FBI had previously assessed BIE as a significant threat, that's black identity extremists, only to reverse itself upon overwhelming political criticism from Democrat lawmakers. Language that emphasizes mere bias rather than a documented and understandable comprehensive political ideology of racial supremacy, either black or white, creates a standard so broad as to be effectively meaningless. If you actually look at who these populations are and the administration describes essentially these violent extremists as effectively being right wing, in terms of anti-government, they, they use anti-government when it comes from you know, pur- purportedly resistors to government overreach or those who claim to want to overthrow the government because it's thwarting the Constitution. And they're not very clear and concise and precise in their verbiage here, of course. And of course, a liberal definition means a liberal application of whatever they're going to put forth, which I'll get to in a minute. As Yahoo News wrote back in February, the government has released no data on historical activity or the current threat landscape to justify these sorts of claims. Prominent Democrats have alluded primarily to a single source, the Center for Strategic and International Studies Domestic Terror Database, to claim that right-wing extremists pose the greatest threat of all, as January 6th reflected. Here's the thing, though. There's a problem with that CSIS, Center for Strategic and International Studies, report. It cooks the books. How do I know this? Well, per the Washington Post, CSIS's definition of domestic terrorism incidents, quote unquote, excludes many violent events, including incidents during nationwide unrest last year, because CSIS analysts could not determine whether attackers had a political or ideological motive. In other words, there's only a political or ideological motive when it suits the narrative that the administrative state, the deep administrative state, wants to put forth. Anything that runs afoul of it, anything that counters that narrative, well, they just don't count it. Government officials have also particularly hyped the threat from the military as a hotbed of domestic violent extremism. And you know full well about this pervasive effort to try to claim that the military is racist and bigoted and that those troops need to be purged. Well, CSIS's own analysis, which I've dove into a little bit, says in a footnote, based on the 2020 data, less than four ten-thousandths of a percent of all active duty troops and two ten-thousandths of a percent of all reservists were involved in domestic terrorism. So we're supposed to take the government at its word about the relative extent of domestic violent extremism, even though it never clearly defines the size, scope, or nature of the threat. And even as the government in recent years has clearly targeted its perceived political opponents. Now, how do we know that this is going to be a weaponized national security apparatus? Well, one of the things that this countering domestic terrorism report says is that newer sociopolitical developments, such as narratives of fraud in the recent general election, the emboldening impact of the violent breach of the U.S. Capitol, conditions related to the COVID-19 pandemic and conspiracy theories promoting violence, will almost certainly spur some DVEs to try to engage in violence this year. And when we come back after a short break, I am going to detail exactly what the administration proposes to counter whatever they define, whomever they define as a domestic violent extremist, and it could well be you. And I'll explain why after this quick quick break. This is Ben Weingarten for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show, back right after this. So before the break, we were talking about who the Biden administration views as domestic violent extremists, namely potentially you, because they never define 
precisely what constitutes the threat or how great that threat is. But what they do make, I believe, abundantly clear is the way in which they're going to prosecute that threat. And if January 6th, if the January 6th investigation proves to be the archetype for it, we really have major problems with respect to our civil rights, our civil liberties in this country. In fact, our most basic natural rights will all be under threat. So one of the things that I found amazing that this report states is that past U.S. government prevention efforts have had a mixed record. We need to do better, better at protecting rights and freedoms while still pursuing the goal of preventing individuals from harming their fellow Americans through terrorism or other criminal activity. So you see, they've brought back the entire Obama apparatus throughout the administrative state, obviously throughout the executive branch and at the highest levels of the executive branch, the very same people whose underlings and themselves were responsible for Spygate. But don't worry, this time around, they're really going to make sure they're going to do their darndest to protect the civil liberties of the people that they look down upon, hate, and loathe. The insurrectionist supporters. The document goes on to say appropriate elements of the intelligence and law enforcement communities have already identified and are now implementing more robust information exchanges with foreign partners. Let me repeat that. Information exchanges with foreign partners regarding the foreign connections to the U.S. domestic terrorism threat and those partners' own experiences addressing any comparable threats within their countries. Well, why shouldn't we assume that the dealings with foreign counterparts of our intelligence community and the law enforcement communities won't really be using foreign powers essentially to surveil Americans. We know that these powers have been abused before, that FISA has been abused to target American domestic political adversaries of the deep state. Why shouldn't we assume that American intelligence and law enforcement will use foreign partners to pursue people here as well? And never fear, by the way, you know, an essential part of this whole operation is teaching you how to see through disinformation and misinformation from the very people in our administrative state who fight like hell against any data, statistics, arguments that don't support their narratives on any number of issues. I quote here, The Department of Homeland Security and others are either currently funding and implementing or planning evidence-based digital programming, you know, trust the science, including enhancing media literacy and critical thinking skills as a mechanism for strengthening user resilience to disinformation and misinformation online for domestic audiences. So we're from the government and we're here to tell you what the narrative is. And if you disagree, you're a purveyor, a supporter, a propagator of misinformation and disinformation. See how this works? I mean, when the hell did the U.S. government get in the business of seeking to prove to us what constitutes misinformation or disinformation, to filter information to us, or teach us how to see it through the government's favored eyes? This should scare the heck out of every American. And no one's talking about it today. In a press conference with several administration officials, or at least one administration official, about this strategy... They actually go on to advocate creating context in which those who are family members or friends or coworkers know that there are pathways and avenues to raise concerns and seek help for those who they have perceived to be radicalizing and potentially radicalizing towards violence. Let's stop right there. What does that mean? Spy on your neighbors, your friends, your family members. So what happens if you have a leftist kid and you're a conservative with traditional conservative views? And the kid says, well, you know what? Those views are essentially the views of the insurrectionists. 
or even that Trumpism itself is de facto racist, bigoted, etc., incites violence. They literally want to turn Americans against American, family members against family members. And this is the stuff of third world police states. This is the stuff of communist countries past and present. Friends, neighbors, family members spy on you. But how many times have we heard, by the way, colleagues, acquaintances of jihadists who saw telltale signs of imbibing jihadist ideology and don't say a word about it for politically correct reasons? You can guarantee that won't happen here. It'll be the complete other end of the spectrum. But meanwhile, the real trick of this whole strategy is buried in the last few pages of it. I believe it's twenty pages 27 and 29 of the document. Look them up. And I'll paraphrase part of it as this. Anti-racism is national security, and the war on domestic terrorism is infrastructure, because everything is infrastructure. And let me unpack that a little bit. The document says, and I quote, although the U.S. government must do everything it can to address enduring challenges like racism and bigotry in America, the federal government alone cannot simply solve these challenges quickly or on its own. On the other hand, tackling the threat posed by domestic terrorism over the long term demands substantial efforts to confront the racism that feeds into aspects of that threat. So you know where they're going here. If we're a racist country and racism leads to domestic violent extremism, we have to do everything we can to purge the country of racism as they define it. And how do they define racism? Well, in the eyes of those who believe in equity, part of critical race theory, and so-called anti-racism, the anti-racists believe explicitly that racism is okay if it leads to the proper outcomes, i.e. every outcome in society accurately representing the population proportions of people in this country. So anti-racists like Ibram X. Kendi explicitly say racist policies are okay if they make up for past racism. So what does the document say? We are therefore prioritizing efforts to ensure that every component of the government has a role to play in rooting out racism and advancing equity. Anti-racism is national security. Part of prosecuting the domestic war on terror is imposing cultural Marxism on us. They won't describe it that way, but that's what it is. And it goes beyond that. It goes to other parts, the broader parts of the progressive agenda as well. And that's what anti-racism, of course, is about. It's imposing the progressive agenda on us under the guise of being anti-racist and virtuous. So they say, we're prioritizing efforts to improve the well-being and safety of everyone who calls America their home. We've worked with Congress to deliver immediate financial relief, contributing to an equitable recovery, etc., etc. Our continued efforts will augment and accelerate the essential work of recovery and sustainable development, alleviating over time the sentiments that some domestic terrorists deliberately use to recruit and mobilize. Demonstrating that our government can deliver for all Americans is crucial to restoring confidence in our democracy. You should have no confidence in our Republican system if they are going to impose their ideology, their anti-American, anti-natural rights, racist, racialist ideology on every aspect of our society under the guise of fighting domestic terrorism. They say these efforts speak to a broader priority, enhancing faith in government. Well, the government's lost faith justifiably and addressing extreme polarization fueled again by disinformation and misinformation often channeled through social media platforms. Run for the hills, America, if this is the policy that's going to be imposed on us under the guise of national security. This is a recipe for tyranny, and we'll talk with Senator Ron Johnson about this recipe for tyranny right after this break. 
Father's Day is around the corner, as you know. And if your dad or grandfather served this great country of ours, how cool would it be to give him something really meaningful this year? Something that recognized what he gave to this country. Something like the American flag. If you know your father or grandfather would be moved by a gift like this, then let let me recommend you to my friends at Allegiance Flag Supply. Everything this country means to your dad is reflected in the quality of the craftsmanship Allegiance Flag Supply puts into their flags. These flags are made in America, which is actually really uncommon, believe it or not. They're hand-sewn by seamstresses in Charleston, South Carolina, whose previous jobs were lost to companies who outsourced overseas. And they're made with materials that do not allow for cutting corners in the manufacturing process. All of this translates into a flag that waves proudly outside your father's home, his dock, or on his boat, and won't get tangled, torn, or shredded in the fashion other flags in the marketplace often do. This is a way to say thank you to Dad on multiple levels this Father's Day. Go to showallegiance.com. Just go to this website, showallegiance.com, and enter promo code BUCK for 10% off your order. Showallegiance.com. Enter that promo code BUCK for 10% off your whole order and get yours in time for Father's Day on June 20th. That's showallegiance.com. Enter promo code BUCK for 10% off. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And in my opening monologue, I talked about the Biden administration's countering domestic terrorism strategy. And one of the central data points that they point to to justify that strategy are the events around January 6th. And one of the senators who has been dogged in trying to get to the absolute truth about what transpired that day is Senator Ron Johnson, the Republican from Wisconsin. He's the chair of the Senate Homeland Security Committee, as well as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, and he joins us now. Senator Johnson, thanks so much for coming on the program. Well, Ben, glad to come on. So let's start with a critical question, which is what's your rebuttal to the Biden administration, many of your colleagues, the corporate media and even boardrooms across the country who all claim that January 6th constituted an armed insurrection, an unprecedented domestic terrorist attack on the Capitol on the level of a 9-11 or Pearl Harbor? Well, first of all, when I hear armed, as I think most Americans, uh, you think of firearms and I think we've conclusively demonstrated that there really weren't firearms present on the part of the, the protesters. I asked an FBI witness in our, our second uh, joint committee hearing how many firearms were confiscated in or around the Capitol, and the answer was none. I think Director Ray has pretty well confirmed that as well. So again, that, that, that's there, there, there weren't it was an armed insurrection, and you know I also recognize that talking about thousands of armed insurrectionists, uh, that plays quite well with Democrats and the media that want to paint a broad brush, uh, accusing pretty much 75 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump as potential domestic terrorists. But that, that terminology also works quite, quite well for anybody in a position where they're responsible for capital security because, I mean, what, what could they have done in the face of thousands of armed insurrectionists? So that, that's why that term has been so potent and why people are pushing back so strenuously on people like me that are, that are challenging the fact that that just isn't an accurate depiction. And all you have to really do is take a look at news media uh, photos inside the Capitol on that day. Uh, that's not what an armed insurrection would look like. Not, not people staying within the rope lines inside the rotunda or kind of wandering into the Senate chamber 
with no violence occurring whatsoever. But again, I have I have to state I condemn the violence. You know, there was violence. There were there were reprehensible and repugnant acts and racial slurs. I condemn that. I want to see those people prosecuted the full extent of the law. But I also want an accurate description of actually what happened, which is why I'm trying to undertake my own investigation to lay out for history uh, the full spectrum of behavior and exactly what happened on January 6th. What is the most compelling evidence in your view that there's a double standard in justice in the treatment of those who participated in what some have called and I call the 1619 riots of last summer versus those who have been pursued in what the Justice Department, by, by its own admission, calls a sprawling, if not unprecedented, investigatory effort? Well, I think the deferred, uh, they're called something else, but I'll call them deferred prosecution agreements in, in Portland. So you had uh, rioters uh, for more than 100 days continue to assault the federal courthouse. So that's, that's federal crime. Uh, those individuals are pretty well let off scot-free, it would appear. And I, I, I haven't received an answer from uh, Attorney General Garland to our letter uh, joined with four other U.S. senators just trying to lay out the facts you know, how, how aggressively the FBI Department of Justice has gone after the summer rioters uh, versus how aggressively uh, they've gone after the people who participate in January 6th. So we're waiting on answers uh, on, on that letter or to that letter. I'm not holding my breath, but uh, you know, hopefully an inquisitive news media will help us get those answers as well. But again, people like Julie Kelly, uh, people like yourself are, are doing a pretty good job of uh, examining the court documents and uh, comparing what is happening in terms of prosecutions with the, the participants of January 6th versus the summer riots. And Julie Kelly uh, recently quoted you as stating that the idea that there were groups of provocateurs and agitators also is holding up. And I think you alluded to Mike Waller's on the ground eyewitness accounts, which I think you've read in part into the congressional record regarding the sort of formations that he saw and the sort of organized, coordinated effort that took place among some of those who were on Capitol Hill that day. And yesterday, I'm sure you saw there was this explosive report put out by Revolver asking questions about whether and to what extent federal law enforcement or national security officials themselves may have infiltrated some of the groups cited as having participated in what transpired in the Capitol and asking basic fundamental questions, provocative questions about what did the government know, when did it know it, and were there perhaps even informants embedded among those who participated in those riots? Do you have any comment or view on that report? Well, first of all, I, I found the report in Revolver uh, very interesting. Um, it just proves the value of uh, examining the court documents of these prosecutions and trying to figure out you know, what, what we can glean from that kind of information. But uh, I, I thought it was pretty revealing a uh, thwarted plot to kidnap and, I, I guess, uh, take control of the Michigan state capitol as well. Uh, so... I think I mean, it raises an awful lot of questions of uh, that particular uh, article. And it's just going to be more more questions that I think uh, Merrick Garland and Christopher Ferret need to answer. I understand your team has reviewed some of the, I believe, more than 14,000 hours of tape around the Capitol during and after January 6th. 
tape which has been concealed from the American public. Ridiculously, my understanding is uh, the government has argued that it needs to conceal it because essentially the footage might incite people to violence. Why doesn't the government, why shouldn't the government reveal what's on all that tape, if, uh, particularly if it's so obvious that this event was on the level of a 9-11 or Pearl Harbor? Well, first of all, I think that video should be made publicly available at some point in time. I know the government will argue, well, not until we're done with our criminal investigations. Uh, obviously, one of the reasons I sent my staff in to start reviewing it is uh, I want to get an accurate assessment of exactly what happened. And of course, I think you're aware of the fact that I wrote a letter last Thursday uh, to Capitol Hill Police trying to confirm what my staff saw in the West Terrace entrance door, where more than 300 people uh, walked in that door once it was opened from the inside by people uh, exiting the building. So you know, what, I'm, what I'm directing my staff to do is, is you know, go to the relevant tapes that show points of entry, uh, points of con- conflict and violence, but also to show the broad spectrum of behavior inside the Capitol. Again, it, it didn't, doesn't look to me, just, just by what we've already seen publicly available from cell phone videos and, and news media videos, the behavior inside the Capitol, for, for, I can't even say maybe the most part, but an awful lot of that behavior doesn't look anything like what an armed insurrection would look like. Um, so, again, I'm just, just trying to push back on what I think is a completely false narrative that's being put forward for the reasons I stated earlier. It's remarkable. I don't know if you've had a chance to review yet the Biden administration's domestic uh, countering domestic terrorism strategy, which uh, effectively, paraphrasing here, seeks to paint uh, roughly, as you noted, 74, 75 million Americans as would be or potential or accomplices in or at least promoters of uh, domestic violent extremism. And the document strains to argue that all of these policies, which include, for example, working with big tech, working with the private sector, working with foreign governments, and it even goes on to say, prioritizing efforts to ensure every component of government has a role to play in rooting out racism and advancing equity as part of this domestic countering domestic terrorism strategy, that we should have no concerns, essentially, about our civil liberties and justice in this country. Based on what you've experienced with the national security and intelligence and law enforcement apparatuses over at least the last four plus years, including leaks aimed at seeking to undermine yourself, why should the American people have confidence that our rights are going to be protected under this domestic countering domestic terrorism strategy? Well, first of all, it's one of the casualties of the corrupt FBI investigation into the Trump colluding with Russia hoax. Uh, and Let's face it, Director Ray, I do not believe, has restored confidence and, and credibility and integrity of the FBI. And that, that's, a real, that's a real shame because Americans need to have confidence, a legitimate confidence in the Department of Justice and the FBI, and they don't have it right now. And I understand that. Um, but, you know, what, what is interesting is this effort to basically state that the white supremacists are the greatest threat facing this nation. By the way, I condemn white supremacists. I don't, know, I don't know how many times a guy like myself or President Trump has to say that before people believe it, but I condemn it. But I don't believe it's the greatest threat, but as Chairman of Homeland Security, Senator Gary Peters was my ranking member, and when we would hold the threat hearings where we're talking about 
you know, some real significant threats, whether it's the potential of an existential threat like an EMP or GMD or, or all the cyber threats this nation faces, the vulnerability of our, our, our electrical grid to all kinds of different types of attack, he would always concentrate on the threat represented by white supremacists. And I never quite got it. I, I was happy to, uh, you know, investigate that. I'm, I'm glad that we're keep, keeping uh, tabs on those groups, but I, I, just, I just never quite understood why he was emphasizing that so much. It's, it's I guess, a little more enlightening now that, that this is sort of the centerpiece of what the Biden administration is now doing to delegitimize, delegitimize their political opponents. You know, again, paint with a very broad brush. The 75 million Americans are, are white supremacists, uh, domestic terrorists that uh, need to be surveilled, I guess, apparently by the FBI and the Department of Justice. I'm not quite sure where this is going, but it ought to frighten every American. Yeah, are we ever going to get a clear answer from the administration? Will your colleagues essentially sue for an answer about, you know, to the administration, please justify, please substantiate the claims about this constituting the greatest threat to America? And then please define who you're going to pursue in this domestic terror campaign, because it strikes me as it's such a liberal, lax, imprecise standard that people are using that it could be used, as you said, to paint the broadest brush possible. Well, you know, people like myself continue to push back on it. But again, we will continue to be attacked and ridiculed and marginalized by the mainstream media and social media. So that, that's one thing Democrats can always be rest assured of is they've got uh, the media and the mainstream media and the, and the social media in their back pocket. And so they can say things with impunity and never really be held accountable for it. So it's, it's, it's one of the threats to our freedom uh, that, that we are experiencing. Uh, a deep state, which there is one, uh, it's populated by liberal progressives, people that uh, frustrated and resisted anything that uh, President Trump tried tried to uh, uh, enact. And, and yet they're part and parcel of the Democratic Party. Uh, for example, the IRS under our lowest learner. Now we see people leaking uh, the tax returns of wealthy Americans. So people need to understand what we're up against here. We're up against a media, a social media, a deep state populated by liberal progressives. Uh, it's hard to be conservative in America today. So, Senator Johnson, I want to turn now to some matters relating to uh, national security and foreign policy. As you witness President Biden on the world stage in Europe and dealing with Vladimir Putin and beyond, and particularly with respect to China and Russia, really more broadly, to what extent do you believe his family's dealings with individuals and entities nationalists from various adversarial regimes and corrupt regimes, uh, how, to what extent do you believe that they impact his policy? And I should preface this with you participated in, in leading a joint uh, Senate committee effort to unearth many dealings between not just Hunter Biden and, and such nationals and entities, but other Biden family members as well. So how do you think about that in context of our foreign policy today? Well, what I can say with a great deal of uh, certainty is that President Biden is exuding weakness on the world stage, and that is dangerous for America. In terms of exactly how compromised he was, and that's the term that Tony Bobulinski, who was in business with uh, Hunter Biden, that's the term he used, that the Biden and the Biden administration would be compromised. Uh, I don't know the full extent, but I do know that our Senate report uh, painted a, a pretty troubling picture that the mainstream media, again, ignored, actually, again, ridiculed, said there was nothing there to see, no, there's all kinds of things to see there, a, a vast web of 
uh, foreign financial entanglements that certainly could compromise a Biden administration in China, in Russia, uh, throughout the world. Uh, we continue to learn uh, almost on a weekly basis new revelations, not from, not from U.S. news sources. This stuff normally comes out of uh, the U.K. Daily Mail or other foreign sources that are, you know, have access to that laptop. Uh, the, the mainstream media in America is, is basically just completely not inquisitive in terms of, uh, you know, really the, the, the national security threats, the uh, counterintelligence threats, the potential extortion threat of the Biden Inc. of financial entanglements around the world. So we've got two and a half minutes left. And I want to touch on two subjects quickly. The first is, in your view, uh, why should we have faith in the intelligence community's 90-day review of, in part, the Wuhan lab leak theory, given that we know, for example, regarding 2020 election interference, the intelligence community seemingly went soft on China and relatively harder on Russia? Well, first of all, I think the uh, origin of, of the coronavirus is really quite obvious. It's been obvious that the, the truth has been hiding in plain sight for months, probably more than a year. And we, we turned our, our, our heads to it back then. Um, I would say the hard evidence has already been destroyed because there's been such a lag. But what we can say with certainty is China is guilty. Uh, regardless whether it's a lab accident or you know, a leak or, or something uh, worse, we certainly know that China allowed flights from Wuhan to all points around the globe, but not within China. And so they infected the world. They are guilty of that. They, they need to be held accountable for that. YouTube has suspended you, I think, maybe on multiple occasions, uh, most recently regarding your comments about alternative treatments for the coronavirus, claiming you know, on disinformation grounds, I guess, public health imperiling grounds uh, that you must be muzzled on social media. Uh, and of course, we know that social media, of course, has censored all sorts of information it doesn't like on certain issues that ends up proving true, like, for example, the lab leak, the viability of the lab leak theory. Uh, obviously, all of these big tech companies violate Section 230's preamble with impunity, which calls for free and open debate. That's the whole purpose or a large part of the purpose of Section 230 uh, immunity. What is the answer to combating big tech given how tyrannical it's acting today, and it seems potentially in partnership or at the egging on of members of Congress? Well, I would say, and this may not be possible, but the best answer would be free market competition. And, and there are, there are you know, YouTube now has Rumble. Uh, Parler is, is uh, there in, in, in place of, uh, uh, I guess, Facebook or, or Twitter. Um, so you, you do have some free market competition. That, that would be the best solution from my standpoint. But I think we do need to understand the enormous power that these tech oligarchs are accumulating in terms of the uh, dissemination of information, what people can see, what they can't see. And quite honestly, their censorship when it, as it relates to the, the pandemic has cost people their lives. Uh, there's no reason for them to censor my discussion of just encouraging early treatment. Uh, pushing the agencies to robustly explore some of these generic cheap drugs that are incredibly safe, by the way. I mean, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, lay, lay aside their effectiveness. Their safety profile is, is unassailable. They've been around for decades. You know, why not allow uh, consumers, patients uh, that have no other options, give them a shot at it. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the champion of right to try. Uh, Americans ought to have the right to try, and doctors ought to be able to prescribe it without being intimidated by uh, you know, the government agencies or, or by their uh, different associations. So, no, I believe 
big tech censorship together with the uh, blunder within the, the health agencies that have made it very difficult for uh, patients to get some of these potentially life-saving drugs, I, I think it's personally it's cost tens of thousands of lives. Senator Johnson, I understand you have to get back to the floor for some votes. Thanks so much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Have a great day. Thank you for taking the time, Senator, again, for all your great work. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And one of the running themes of this entire week is touching third rails because the truth matters. And when the left says that, of course, what they mean is their narrative matters. But what we mean is that we ought to objectively analyze all of the difficult policy questions of the day, ideology questions of the century, really, and look at them passionately, but with an open mind. And one person who's been doing that for decades and who would probably be probably be canceled were he just starting out today and they tried to do it 30 years ago and it didn't work is Charles Murray. He's the Hayek Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, first came to national attention in 1984 with the publication of Losing Ground regarding in part the welfare state and still quite relevant to today, followed by The Bell Curve in 1994 and Coming Apart in 2012. And Coming Apart is a book Everyone ought to read on another show that I guest host for the Federalist bad news with Emily Jashinsky. We reference coming apart all of the time in context of how out of touch our media is and the chasm between what we'd call our ruling class and the tens of millions of people out there who dissent from it. And of course, among the intellectuals, it's viewed as a book to explain how Trump voters came to be, why they are, how they are. And his latest book is out entitled Facing Reality. Two Truths About Race in America. And I'm thrilled to be joined by Charles Murray right now. Thanks so much for coming on the program. It's my pleasure, Ben. What are the two facts about race we can't ignore? And why did you choose those two facts above all others? Uh, The bare bones of the two facts are first that the different races in this country, blacks, whites, Latinos, and Asians have different means and distribution of cognitive ability. The second is that blacks, whites, Latinos, and Asians have different rates of violent crime. And why did I choose them? Uh, Ben, it goes back to last summer. I was reading the coverage of the protests and the riots and, uh, and the need to reform policing, and then came the systemic racism charges, and look at uh, the big corporations and how few black senior managers they have. And I was looking for something in the mainstream media, anything which said, well, in thinking about these issues, we have to we have to take into account uh, some salient facts about uh, life on the ground. And one of these is that police entering a low income black neighborhood are operating in a very dangerous environment, completely unlike the environment if it goes into an Asian neighborhood or, or, or a middle class white neighborhood. And the second thing is that Microsoft and Google and General Motors and everybody would love to have more mid-level and upper-level black managers, but the the pipeline of, of people coming into jobs that can compete for those jobs does not include enough blacks to, to fill the, the demand for them. I wasn't asking, and I want to emphasize this, um, I'm not trying to say in this book there's no such thing as racism in the United States, nor that there's no such thing as police brutality. These things exist. 
But if we're going to talk about what to do about it, we've got to cut the systemic racism rhetoric and look at all the ways in which life is affected by differences between groups that are real, that are documented, that we can live with, but we have to face. So to that point, one of the things you write in the prologue to the book is that you reject the portrayal of American society and institutions as systemically racist and saturated in white privilege. Make your best case against those who cling to this narrative of systemic racism and overwhelming white privilege in this country. Well, the first point I'd make, let's go to let's go to the uh, labor market and uh, and is it systemically biased against blacks? If it were systemically biased against blacks, you would have a situation in which you have a black registered nurse and she's completed her diploma and uh, and she can't get a job because they're hiring whites instead. Not only does that not happen, on the contrary, the average IQ of black registered nurses is about 10, 12 points lower than the, uh, the mean IQ of white registered nurses. Now, that statement I just made is susceptible to all sorts of wild misinterpretations because believe me, Ben, I've been dealing with this problem for 27 years after the, uh, 26 years after the bell curve. Folks, there can be a difference in means between two groups and you still have overlapping distribution so that millions of blacks are smarter than millions of whites and so forth, so forth and so on. What I'm saying is that you can't tell me that we have a job market in which the average IQ of people holding accountants jobs and nurses jobs and cops jobs. And I just go down the entire list, every single job category where they have much lower cognitive ability as measured by standardized tests and say the job market is biased against them. We, if we have systemic racism in the job market, it is systemic racism that favors blacks to a very marked degree and favors Latinos to a lesser degree. You mentioned standardized testing, and that's become a huge hot-button topic. We've been talking about it this week in context of New York public schools, where there's a huge debate, particularly among Asian Americans uh, versus those who are being promoted in seeking to abolish standardized testing to get into places like Stuyvesant and Bronx Science. And I'm struck by this tweet. I always go back to this as sort of the uh, argument par excellence, I guess, of the, the wokists regarding standardized tests. This is a tweet from Ibram X. Kendi in September 2019, and he's written about this more at length. But here's his short form ver- version. Quote, I'll say it again and again. Standardized tests have become the most effective racist weapon ever devised to objectively degrade black minds and legally exclude their bodies. Charles Murray, how do you respond to Ibram X. Kendi? This is one of those cases where the there is a conventional wisdom out there that certainly he expressed, but an awful lot of, uh, of other people accepted, too, of all races, and that is that the tests are biased against minorities and especially against blacks. And, and the reason it's so weird is because no issue in, in psychology and testing has been examined in more detail repetitively replicated time and again, looking for evidence of bias against uh, blacks. There has been very little done on it throughout the 21st century for a very simple reason. 
these questions were answered definitively in the 80s and 90s, and there's just been no evidence to the contrary since. And I'll just give a really short primer on what I mean by no evidence of bias. I mean, the real test of bias would be if standardized, te standardized tests underpredict black performance, which is to say a uh, black kid takes the SAT, uh, doesn't get a very good score, but you let him into school and he does way better than the score would have predicted. That would be bias against blacks. Similarly, somebody takes a, a job uh, employment test, scores low, is hired anyway. Hey, that's great. Does much better than the test score would predict. That would be evidence. There is zero, and I want to emphasize zero evidence that uh, standardized tests do that. The only thing in which a good case can be made for different interpretation of test results is that for blacks, standardized tests tend to over-predict performance. And that is the black kid takes an SAT, goes into college, and he doesn't do as well as the SAT would predict he did. Now, when I say zero evidence, I just will conclude by saying I'm talking about dozens, if not hundreds, of studies examining test bias uh, that go back for decades and the verdict is in and it's unanimous. It, it does not exist. We've got a couple minutes but left. Then, before we go away from that, we'll add one more sentence. Sure. The standardized tests are one of the greatest advantages that a talented black kid can have. He can have come from a terrible environment, all the objective uh, uh, measures of his uh, childhood would say this kid really isn't going to do much. If he's smart, he's going to score well on a test and people will recognize him. It's a wonderful gift to talented black kids. In just about a minute and a half, we'll take a quick break. Uh, before that, I did want to ask, before we get to what you call sort of the, the first order uh, responses to your analyses, uh, what was your most counterintuitive or what were your most couple most counterintuitive findings with respect to both, both aptitude and violent crime in preparing this book? Counterintuitive. Um, at, off the top of my head, I can't recall anything that was counterintuitive. I can say that when it comes to violent crime, the ratios of black and white uh, rates of violent crime was far greater than I would have predicted. Another thing that surprised me I knew that Asians had low crime rates, violent crime rates. I didn't realize how low. They are ridiculously low, uh, much lower uh, of, in most cities that I was able to get data for than whites. Uh, the thing is, at the back of my mind, is that there is a counterintuitive result that I mentioned somewhere, and I can't think of it right now. <laughs> not, not a problem at all. We'll have more with Charles Murray on his new book, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America, right after this.
Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We're speaking with Charles Murray, author of the new book, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. So we talked about those two truths, and now let's delve a little bit into what the consequences of those truths are. So Charles Murray, you talk about first order effects of race differences in cognitive ability and race differences in violent crime. Speak a bit to what those first order effects consist of. We've already talked a little bit about the first order effects of of, uh, of cognitive ability, and that is that from the educational pipeline on through to the job market, uh, affirmative action has been used in a way which systematically means that blacks and whites in a given school or in a given employer have markedly different uh, uh, cognitive ability. That is not a necessary result. If you really had a fair shake whereby a, a black job applicant or school applicant is considered on the merits of qualifications, if that were the case, you would have no problem at all. Well, the problem would be you wouldn't have as many black physicians, you wouldn't have as many black attorneys and so forth, and any other profession where the numbers are being jacked up because lesser credentials are required. But the, the more important thing is that if you wanted to get a position, you wouldn't have to say to yourself, as so many people do, in fact, have to do when you have a black physician as an option, is this an affirmative action position or is this a kid who's really able and really smart and, and should be a physician? We have no way of knowing. So you systematically have marked differences in IQ throughout society perpetuated by the insistence of schools and employers of applying different criteria to admitting or employing blacks from whites and to a lesser degree Latinos from whites. I think that is Maybe it's just a first-order effect. I think it is deeply, deeply toxic. It has been building up, and a lot of what we see going on right now is a direct result of that. Okay, quickly then to violent crime. It's real simple. If you are a white in an urban uh, environment, you do not go to shop in a black neighborhood. You don't go to restaurants there. Uh, you don't buy your car there. You don't. Uh, you don't do anything in the black part of town. And one of the reasons you don't do it is because the threat of crime in the black part of town is markedly different than the white part of town. Uh, if you are a chain store, uh, CVS or, you, or, or Walmart or something, yeah, you have some outlets in low-income black neighborhoods, but not nearly as many as you would have if you didn't have shoplifting being such a huge problem as it is in those neighborhoods. And of course, the other first order different uh, effect is uh, black lives do indeed matter. And black lives are being lost in large numbers. And they are being lost to black perpetrators, not to the police. And all of these things, uh, all these things are very sad and very unnecessary if we started to readopt colorblindness, which is now hate speech according to critical race theory, as we adopted colorblindness as the ideal. 
We've got about two and a half minutes left. And the last chapter of your book is titled, If We Don't Face Reality. And we've just talked about some of the consequences if we don't face reality. And we see it, of course, for example, quite notably in terms of the dumbing down of school standards, not having advanced classes for certain students and all the knock-on effects to that. It strikes me that there's even a bigger problem with respect to reality and facing it, which is that it's one thing to not face reality. It's another thing if we're not even allowed to ask the questions necessary to get to the reality. I wonder what you make of that in light of what we're seeing, for example, in the area of medical research, where I read at length from a piece uh, that Barry Weiss put up on her Substack about how there are areas of medical research that are completely off limits now on politically correct grounds. And you've witnessed this in your own career. So I wonder what, yeah. what, you, what thoughts you might have on that. Uh, yeah. In fact, why did I write this book? I wrote it for a couple of reasons. One is precisely that kind of problem that we are not going to solve unless we're willing to talk about these issues. And look, I'm 78 years old. Uh, they can't cancel me. They can't ruin my career. And I'm hoping that this book will, will provide some cover for more people to talk about these issues. And Ben, the other one that we don't have time to talk about in any detail, but I will simply mention, if whites start to uh, use identity politics as their playing uh, field, if they say, okay, if blacks can do identity politics, so can we, we've got a disaster on our hands. Uh, the, The essence of what makes America, America, is that in America, you're supposed to be treated as an individual. Uh, You are supposed to be judged on who you are, the content of your character, not the color of your skin, and you have the same innate human dignity as everyone else. Identity politics repudiates that ideal, and if whites go that route too, uh, we're doomed. And I fear that that may be perceived as a feature, not a bug, from the perspective of the identitarians today. And as you said, it's going to tear at the fabric of our country if we don't fight it with that colorblindness standard that that you hope for us to achieve. Charles Murray, thanks so much for writing this book and thanks so much for coming on the program. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And we'll jump around a bit today. Just had a great conversation with Charles Murray. And we'll return a little bit later to some of the themes that came up during that conversation. But let's go back to Joe Biden's excellent European vacation or the weekend at Biden's vacation, as it it might be called. It's very clear that the emperor doesn't just figuratively have no clothes here. And it's an emperor in name only, to be fair. But you have to fear that the emperor in name only could literally be found walking around the White House with no clothes based upon what we're seeing in terms of this performance in Europe. And and I don't mean to be glib or extreme or exaggerate in what we're witnessing, but how can you look? It's not just gaffes. This is a politician who for decades has had legitimate gaffes. It is scary to witness him on a world stage. It is a danger to the country to witness him on a world stage. When you think about the ways, it's hard to watch him stumble through sentence after sentence. How can you imagine him engaging with cold, calculating adversaries, deathly serious, and fully 100% there? Can anyone look at Joe Biden and say he is? And cynically, maybe that's the point. You know, I've talked about this, him being a figurehead while we sort of have stale bread and sorry circuses in front of us. What's your favorite ice cream, Mr. President? 
while you're ramming through cultural Marxism, equity over equality, while you're pursuing deindustrialization, crippling American energy, riddling us, saddling us with trillions of dollars in incremental debt, which of course makes us only more reliant or at least vulnerable to our worst adversaries. What we've witnessed here, there have been so many videos put out, clips, during this European swing of Joe Biden with his index cards, his talking points in front of him. And it's one thing to have index cards as sort of a cheat sheet that you can reference, look down at every once in a while. It's a whole other thing when every single conversation is stage managed clearly by the handlers. And you know this because when he goes off script, he says he has this verbal tick. Oh, I'm going to go off script now. I'm going to make my handlers very afraid. I mean, he's open and overt about it. This is a living, breathing propaganda coup for our adversaries, as I'll get to in a moment with respect to Vladimir Putin, where it's on full display, someone who at least portrays himself as being completely in command and running circles around Joe Biden. But you have to ask the question, in a crisis, how could you trust this commander in chief? And again, I go back to, well, really, it's the deep administrative state running things. It's the Obamaites really running things. You know, Susan Rice is in charge of domestic policy. You don't see her out front that much, but you suspect that she's clearly in command. You clearly see the Justice Department following the exact same sort of Obama-era ideology with Merrick Garland Garland as the second coming of Eric Holder, the so-called moderate Merrick Garland. Thank God he's not in the Supreme Court. You see it in the national security and foreign policy, of course, with Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken and the like. It's all retreads. The same people who foisted the disastrous policies on us for eight years under Obama-Biden the first time around, and they're all right back in position today. So maybe you discount a little bit the significance of Joe Biden's condition, but it is scary to watch. I mean, confusing Syria and Libya. Howie Carr wrote a devastating column. And even if you filter out, or again, discount for the editorialization here, I mean, it's just devastating. Carr wrote, when President Biden arrived in the United Kingdom, he spoke at a military base, which is one of his great pleasures. All dialogue guaranteed verbatim. There's nothing that Joe and I and Joe enjoy more than spending time with our troops and their families wherever we go in the world. That's Joe Biden saying that. Last year, he once introduced himself as Jill Biden. Now, Biden apparently thinks of himself as two different people, Joe and I. He saluted the British military, especially the RFA. He reiterated that America wants to avoid conflict with Russia. At least this time, he didn't call the Russian president Clutin. Carr goes on, since his mental decline, Biden has always been clueless with numbers. This week, he bragged about providing a half a billion free vaccines, then cut the number to half a million before finally reverting back to the original. Sleepy Joe exhorted Americans to get their shots at the assorted vaccine sites, including your local YMC. He changed the name of the disease yet again when he sometimes what he sometimes calls COVID-9 this week became Globid COVID-19. As time goes on, Biden is more and more flummoxed by the letter I. Again this week, he referred to the American Rescue Pan. Sorry, the letter L. 
American Rescue Pan. Now, though, in addition to dropping L, he randomly adds the letter to words. He called for more so-called investments in climate change to prevent the worst implacts of climate change. Then there was a trip to Tulsa to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, which he said happened, quote-unquote, a century ago. In Tulsa, he recalled meeting an elderly woman, quote, when she saw the insurrection on January 9, it broke her heart. Yes, Mr. President, but what about the other insurrection? You know, the one on Jan 6th. Biden bemoaned the fact that after 100 years, the survivors in Tulsa haven't had cloture, not closure, cloture. Carr also quotes Biden as saying, I keep forgetting I'm president, which <laughs> in the eyes of Ace of Spades blogger writing about this rates as true. But there are real consequences to this. I mentioned Vladimir Putin, and we'll play some audio from Putin later, mocking and trolling the administration and really exploiting their own tyrannical policies. But the White House had to walk back something that Joe Biden did say, perhaps on his own. Biden said he was willing to entertain sending American citizens, and this is again editorializing from Ace of Spades, but it's true, sending American citizens to Russian gulags. What am I talking about here? Putin proposed, probably facetiously, swapping suspected Russian hackers committing crimes against America for American hackers allegedly committing crimes against Russia. Of course, this is what our adversaries always do. They call for reciprocity when it serves their political agenda, but of course they never act on an equal ground. They're always interested in asymmetric warfare. So Jake Sullivan, White House National Security Advisor, says Biden's not saying he's going to be exchanging cyber criminals with Russia. He didn't say prisoner swap. What he was talking about was accountability and the idea that responsible countries should be held accountable to not harboring cyber criminals and to bring cyber criminals to justice. Yet here's what Biden said. Yes, I'm open to if there's crimes committed against Russia, that in fact, people committing those crimes are being harbored in the United States. I'm committed to holding them accountable. I think that's potentially I was told as I was flying here that Putin said that I think that's potentially a good sign of progress. Putin said, if we agree on the extradition of criminals, then Russia will naturally do that. But only if the other side, in this case, the United States, agrees to the same and will also extradite corresponding criminals to the Russian Federation. Trading Americans for Russians. And this post goes on to talk about all of these other just amazing, not gaffes. This is who Joe Biden is now. And we're really in trouble. Meanwhile, treasonous Russian collusion alert. This is according to Axios. 15 members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus are writing to Biden on Wednesday, today, to encourage him to work with Putin on a range of issues, from arms control to climate change. According to Rep. Pramila Jayapal, the CPC Congressional Progressive Caucus chairperson, in these talks, we hope that you will prioritize ways that the United States and Russia can work together to reduce tensions in areas of dispute and cooperate on areas of global importance. The U.S. and Russia combined hold more than 90% of the world's nuclear warheads. We believe armed conflict between Russia and the U.S. would be a catastrophe for both countries, for Europe, our allies, and for the world. Have all of these people committed treason? They want to do business with Russia. Let's note, by the way, and I asked President Trump about this actually during an interview, and while I won't go into significant detail about it, the premise of my question to him was, Mr. President, was one of the reasons that you sought 
a closer relationship with Russia, that you wanted to ensure that Russia and China wouldn't come together. Effectively, that you wanted to engage in a modern-day effort to achieve a Sino-Soviet split. Russia and China, both adversaries, you don't want those adversaries working hand-in-hand together against America. You want to split them apart. Divide them. And the president essentially said, I wanted to have good relations with both of them. And the well was completely poisoned with respect to Russia as a consequence of Russiagate. So all the Russiagate collusionistas now, or or collusion mongers, are they guilty of treason now? Should there be FISA warrants opened on all of these members? Should all of their deepest, darkest secrets be exposed? Should fake dossiers be written up about them? Haven't heard anyone in the media accuse them of being Russian traitors. But by the way, we spoke with Ron Johnson before. He's been accused of being a Russian asset. If, if these progressives didn't have hypocrisy, they really wouldn't have anything. All right, after the break, we'll talk a little bit more about the substance of the Biden agenda with respect to Russia. And we'll once again ask the question, who's the real collusion artist? Especially when you consider the Biden family's dealings with Russian political figures, and I believe oligarchs as well, and the funds that have flown in there. So you want to talk about compromise, compromat? Look no further than the man who pseudo-occupies the Oval Office today. This has been Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on The Buck Sexton Show. Back right after this. Of course not. We don't have this kind of habit of assassinating anybody. That's one. Number two is, I want to ask you, did you order the assassination of uh, the woman who walked into the Congress and who was shot and killed by a policeman. Do you know that 450 individuals were arrested after entering the Congress? And they didn't go there to steal a laptop. They came with political demands. 450 people have been detained. They're facing, they're looking, they're, they're looking at jail time between 15 and 25 years, and they came to the Congress with political demands. Isn't that prosecution for political opinions? Some have been accused of plotting to topple, to take over government power. Some are accused of uh, robbery. They didn't go there to rob. The people who you have mentioned, yes, they were convicted for violating their status, having been previously convicted, given convention, uh, uh, given delayed sentences, uh, which was essentially a warning to not uh, violate any laws. And they completely ignored the requirements of the law. The court went on and uh, uh, passed uh, and turned the conviction into real jail time. Uh, Thousands and thousands of people ignore uh, requirements of the law, and they have nothing to do with political activities in Russia every year, and they go to jail. If somebody, if somebody is actually using political activities as a disguise to deal with their own issues, including uh, achieve their commercial uh, goals, then uh, it's something that they have to be held responsible for. That was a translation of Vladimir Putin's response to a question from, I believe, NBC News regarding the alleged assassination attempts on Russian opposition figure, dissident Alexei Navalny. And you see it, the jujitsu that he engages in there, of course, pivoting from, no, we don't assassinate anyone, which, of course, they do, to look at what happened to Ashley Babbitt 
in America. And look what happened to the January 6th so-called insurrectionists. So what you see is that the left's own hyping up of January 6th creates a propaganda coup by creating the appearance of moral equivalence between Russia and the United States. And there's another aspect to that as well. Of course, there's the now this can be used to smear conservatives to say, look, Vladimir Putin takes the same view of January 6th that you insurrectionists do. So you are, of course, you know, Russian collusionista traitors as well. But what this points to is, first of all, that the left's own view as to January 6th, again, serves a propaganda coup, but also the America loathing left frequently creates avenues for our adversaries to try to claim moral equivalence with America. Like, for example, when the counterparts, as I've mentioned before, of Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan for China come to the U.S. and talk about the problems that America has with civil rights and racism. And I saw today uh, after this Putin-Biden meeting that Putin talks about the fact that we don't want to have the violence and the riots and the unrest that America has and has experienced over the last year. Of course, egged on by the left and argue and, and basically subsidized or at minimum cheerled for by none other than Kamala Harris and others as well. But it's not just the propaganda coups, of course. Again, look at the substance of the policy with respect to Russia. Nord Stream 2, as I've talked about ad nauseum already, it was Biden, apparently, according to The Washington Post, who overrode his State Department, which had supported keeping sanctions on the Nord Stream 2 energy pipeline, which gives Russia tons of leverage with respect to Germany. Biden basically said he didn't want to damage U.S.-German relations by killing it. While again... He kills the Keystone Pipeline here at home. Russia gets to supply its energy, gets a huge geopolitical, strategic, and economic stronghold into Europe, into the heart of Europe, into its strongest economy. But in America, you can't have the jobs or the energy associated with it. And meanwhile, we see this headline. that Russian ships are conducting the largest military exercises since the Cold War off the coast of Hawaii, sending the U.S. Air Force scrambling hours before this meeting today. Exercises conducted by Russian Navy in the Pacific Ocean, 300 to 500 miles west of Hawaii, include long-range bombers, surface ships, and anti-submarine aircrafts. And what is Joe Biden going to do about it? And that is what this all comes down to. Our adversaries not only smell weakness, they see weakness every single day. And it's embodied by Joe Biden. It's something like when Rubio, Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio, called uh, some of the Biden administration cabinet members, you know, kind and moderate caretakers of American decline, except that there are people in there who are throwing America off a cliff right now. And our president is the figurehead they hide behind. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton, as I will be all week. And before we hop over to an interview with the great Mark Hemingway, a colleague at Real Clear Investigations, want to hit a couple of stories real quick. First concerns, well, she probably still refers to herself as governor, Stacey Abrams. And of course, she's on with Joy Reid, conspiracy theorist par excellence, who calls everyone else a, a Russian agent and the like, and has been involved in some of the most bizarre and frankly grotesque accusations of any of the demagogues in our bold media. Stacey Abrams said on her show that Republican state lawmakers who are pushing for voting legislation to ensure voter integrity represent a continuation of the insurrection. 
Abrams said, and I quote, we've got to pay attention to the fact these laws do things. One, they're anti-voter. They're designed to stop voters the Republicans found inconvenient in this last election. Namely, young people, people of color, the disabled. Number two, these are anti-election worker bills, of course, the labor angle. They're designed to get good people to abandon their posts, to criminalize those who still want to do their job, and to replace them with those who will undermine the administration of elections. Three, they're designed to subvert democracy. The challenge is, to the extent we have secretaries of state who support and suborn this behavior, they're hastening the demise of our democracy. And this is not hyperbole. This is exactly what happens across the world when, you know, past longstanding democracies start to erode. Who's doing the eroding of our republic? Those who want to ensure the integrity of our elections, the hallmark of representative government, or those who want to make our elections as prone to fraud and corruption as they've ever been in the history of the nation. There's a very simple standard that ought to exist in this country. And if you oppose it, you, Stacey Abrams, are an insurrectionist. I think we can easily turn it right back around on them. Is the insurrection ensuring that lawful votes of American citizens are counted? Or is the insurrection when every vote counts, no matter where it comes from, no matter who casts it? The standard in America should be this. People vote on a singular election day with proof of ID at a polling location. Lawfully. That's it. Period. Full stop. The further away we get from elections on a single day at a single location with proof that you are who you say you are and a lawful American citizen, the further you get from having legitimate elections. At a very minimum, you create all manner of questions about the legitimacy of the elections, which undermines confidence in the system, which ultimately erodes our democracy, so-called. We're a republic. I hate saying the democracy because that's not what we are. We are a republic. And there's a substantial difference. And by the way, the founders were opposed to democracy for a reason and made us a republic for a reason. Because democracy at its core is 50% plus one mob rule. Majority rules can do whatever they want. Our system exists to protect the smallest minority, the individual. And one of the ways we protect that smallest minority, the individual, is to protect the sanctity of the votes. You destroy that when you go out there And you support policies which allow for ballot harvesting and fraudulently other fraudulently cast ballots and never ending election seasons and voting after the elections already should have transpired. This is banana republic stuff. And by the way, at Real Clear Investigations, we published a piece on this by John Lott Jr., who looked at governments across the world. First world countries, the the European countries that the progressive left in America loves to look up to. They never want us to be behind them in their progress. Those countries, and we're talking universally almost across the world among developed nations, have substantially stricter ID policies than Democrats are calling for in America today. And you don't hear cries of systemic racism and voter suppression among at least our Democrats talking about other governments around the world. In fact, they don't talk about other government voting systems around the world. And by the way, most of these governments, according to Lott's reporting, did not impose these ridiculously loose standards like America did during the coronavirus pandemic. So in this case, I guess I'd say two or three cheers for Europe and the rest of the world for rejecting the Stacey Abrams view, the insurrectionist view of eroding and destroying voter integrity and confidence in our Republican system that she's supporting.
Take a quick break and be back right after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. This is Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And one of the running themes of this week is woke ideology and how it is pervading really every aspect of our society. But then also the cynical, practical questions that we have to ask about it in terms of who benefits and what are the practical outcomes to it. And one observer who's been following that with a keen eye is Mark Hemingway. He's a senior writer at Real Clear Investigations. And I should note up front, of course, full disclosure, because that's what we do here, that I was just named recently deputy editor at Real Clear Investigations. So Mark and I will be working together, but haven't done any of the stuff that we'll talk about today. Uh, so with that lead in, uh, Mark, thanks so much for coming on the program today. Hey, glad to be here. So, Mark, some have termed uh, this wokeism and the industry that has arisen as a consequence of wokeism, the woke industrial complex. And I think you exposed one core element of that complex in a recent piece at Real Clear Investigations titled The High Pressure Business of Selling Woke Corporate Armor. Tell us a little bit about that business. Well, I just talked about this uh, woman in particular. Her name is Nandini Jammy. She was one of the founders of a group called Sleeping Giants. Um, Sleeping Giants was uh, a group started by two people in the advertising industry, Nandini Jammy and a partner whose name I forget out in San Francisco. But anyway, in the after, basically, it was, it was directly a reaction to Trump's election, where they went out there and they basically decided that conservative media had too much influence because obviously it played a role in getting Trump elected. So they went out and they started pressuring advertisers to um, Breitbart in particular. They had a you know, huge impact on on taking away advertising from Breitbart, and they but they've also spent a lot of energy targeting Fox News. Uh, but what was interesting is that um, Nandini Jammy, one of the founders of this organization, who led all these social media boycotts that you know got corporations to drop advertising went off on her own and, and she's now um, running a business basically where she tells um, corporations who to advertise with and who not to advertise with, you know, for a fee um, so that they don't get in trouble from the political controversies that she herself is still out on Twitter every day stirring up. I mean, you know, she hasn't stopped being an activist. She's basically like selling, you know, protection services. So is it fair to say that there is sort of an analog to uh, the, the <laughs> sort of social justice mafia in terms of you whip up a fervor to attack certain businesses? And then when that fervor goes too great, then grows too great, then you ask them to pay you for protection? Yeah, no, but I, yes. And, and this has been going on for a very long time. I mean, back in the 80s, I mean, this is basically how Jesse Jackson made his money. Um, you know, he would, you know, he would bless or, you know, approve things like corporate mergers or whatever, um, you know, otherwise he would, you know, threaten the corporations with bad publicity over ratings, you know, I mean, this has been going on for, you know, ever. Um, but it's certainly gone to a new level in recent years, in part because, you know, it used to be very hard to boycott stuff. I mean, you had to have some kind of national organization and be a nationally known figure like Jesse Jackson, you know, who built up the Rainbow Coalition, things like that, um, you know, in order to launch boycotts and have this a sort of effect of public presence. Well, the reality now is that uh, with social media, you know, you know, you can start and end these, you know, campaigns in you know the span of a few hours, basically, and it has an impact with the way corporations handle things. I mean, I have you know differing theories about what's what's going on there. I mean, part of the problem is that today these boycotts have been greatly accelerated because 
Um, not just that the because corporations aren't responding to, to public pressure so much as they're responding to internal pressure from younger and woker employees, particularly in industries like you know Silicon Valley and, and other industries that are you know more politically left. Um, so yeah, it's it's becoming you know absolutely a, a real problem. Um, and you know whenever you get a racket like this, you know you're going to get opportunists and people trying to make a buck off it. And I don't expect that to slow down anytime soon. And this is to say nothing of, of course, the anti-racist consultants that go from business to business charging tens of thousands of dollars to lecture workforces on how uh, terrible and evil and irredeemable and deplorable they are and on and on. I guess it's good work if you can get it. And the question is, what would put a stop to it? As you noted, workforces themselves are 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 reflections of our institutions and society, including our educational institutions, which, of course, have been woke really for decades and are where the woke ideas emanated from in the first place. So is there any competing pressure that you see today on corporations that would cause a rebalancing here? Or is this sort of road to serfdom uh, or road to wokedom, I guess, going to continue apace? Well, that's a really good question. You know, I'm not like overly confident about the prospects at the moment. But I mean, having said that, I do think it's true that um, you, you know, specifically, you mentioned critical race theory, you're starting to see some sort of panic on the left, because, you know, Republican legislatures have actually started to move relatively quickly in the span of a couple of years to start passing legislation against it, teaching it in schools, and, you know, other things like that. It's also true that critical race theory has become, you know, something that the broader right is aware of. Um, and this frustrates the left very, you know, greatly. You know, they, they insist that, you know, conservatives just don't understand critical race theory. And if they did, they would just see it benign. But I mean, that, that's not at all the case. I mean, this is, you know, I don't want to, you know, it, for years you sounded paranoid, you know, when you were conservative and you say, well, you know, this is Marxist or whatever. And, and the reality is critical race theory is, is explicitly Marxist. And, it, and in terms of, you know, how these rackets work, critical race theory is interesting because, it's specifically kind of a, a designed as a closed logical loop that you can't argue with. You know, the whole premise of white fragility and some of these other ideas is that the more you deny um, the problems of your whiteness, the more it's evidence of your, your guilt. Um, and in that kind of environment, I mean, it's basically setting up this you know weird feedback loop to like keep perpet- people in this perpetual state where they're constantly atoning for sins perceived and, you know, uh, and imagined. So that, you know, they, they keep doing things like paying, you know, indulgences essentially to, um, you know, these critical race theory advisors and, and whatnot. They go around speaking to school boards and corporations for, you know, tens of thousands of dollars um, and, uh, you know, to keep that, that going. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how it's going to pan out, but I do think that education is a good first step. And, and more than that, I, I do think that, you know, exercising political authority where we can. I mean, you know, people do tweak uh, school school curricula all the time, you know, and if you know, conservatives don't rise up and insist on, on doing it, then someone else is going to do it. So I, I do think exercising some sort of political you know, authority at the levels that you can to, to fight this stuff um, is necessary. And I'm, I'm good to see it happening in certain areas. I think it's worth noting, and you get into this in your article, that this isn't just typical left-wingers going after big oil. This is actually, wokeism has gained in such strength and speed throughout the corporate world that even, so quote-unquote, socially conscious companies like Tom's are impacted, and even the corporate media itself, which of course is generally aligned with the woke, is in the crosshairs here and, and facing threats to its business model. Can you unpack that for us a little bit? 
<laughs> yeah. Um, it, it, so what happens here is, you know, as we, we sort of discussed previously, you know, a, a lot of this is about this sort of like contest for ideological purity. Um, so, you know, as you know, companies like Tom, which, you know, was a company founded by an evangelical Christian to, you know, fund relief efforts in, in, the, in the third world, essentially, um, you know, a company like Tom's, which donates 15 percent of its profits to, you know, charitable relief efforts in you know, poor areas of the world, um, isn't, you know, is did by some of these uh, services and, you know, that 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 make it their job to judge how woke corporations are as as being a bad company because it's, you know, it's not as transparent as, say, their environmental policies as they would like. I mean, there's basically no, no pleasing these people. Um, and it's, it's, it's really sort of, you know, harrowing to see that, like, that is basically the standard. I mean, you can literally start a company that, you know, makes you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year and give away 15% to charity as a, as a policy. And that's not good enough. I mean, I think that's, that's really where things stand. And in that kind of environment where you have like the insistence on that kind of ideological purity, the truth is a lot of corporations like look around and see what's going on there. And their, their um, instinct is to go out of their way to avoid any controversy whatsoever. And that, that doesn't always mean, you know, playing footsie with, you know, critical race theory or, you know, any of these, you know, race hustlers selling indulgence or whatever indulgences or whatever. Um, often what that means is just withdrawing from the arena altogether. Um, in fact, I talk about this in a piece where this woman named Dini Jammy, who you know, started all these ad boycotts, um, she has actually written herself. She wrote an entire newsletter about like how upset she was that she'd had this negative impact on the entire advertising industry because there were so many social media boycotts that the way advertising works these days is that the vast majority of advertising dollars are spent advertising on the Internet where you can specifically target, um, you know, specific, hopefully specific, you know, um, you know, um, people uh, and demographics on websites, uh, um, or you can target specifically to keywords of like, you know, if you're a, you know, shoe, if you're a tennis shoe company, obviously you're going to be inclined to advertise on, you know, sports websites or something like that. Um, well, anyway, what's happened as a result of this constant barrage of internet boycotts over political issues um the people that do internet advertising have basically you know decimated <laughs> the ad industry in key ways because they use these what they call keyword blacklist like they don't want to advertise against any controversial content whatsoever in fact if you write a news story or i write a news story that contains the word trump blood or lesbians there's a really really good chance that there are thousands of corporations that have an automatic block saying that they don't want to advertise against any story that has any one of those words. And some of these block lists are going to, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of words where corporations are so risk averse. Um, and that is having a huge impact on the advertising industry. It's denying, you know, millions of dollars. They've done studies. It's denying millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising revenue to um, journalistic publications. Um, in fact, I, I quote, I talked in a piece about how um, last year, because the controversies were so bad, um, advertisers started adding COVID and coronavirus to their advertising block lists. So, you know, during a three or four month period last year, when you're from like March to June, when um, that was the biggest story on the planet, um, the advertising industry, I can't remember the exact figures, but it, the University of Maryland did a study and it was staggering how much money that uh, um, that uh, um, the average, that, that, that news organizations lost out in advertising revenue just because corporations are desperate to get um, avoid any controversy. So you're saying there's an upside to wokeism. <laughs> 
I mean, to the extent that wokeism might end up destroying the entire ad model that sustains, you know, the corporate media as we know it, uh, you know, I don't want to like cheer <laughs> on the destruction of the news industry, but something has got to change in terms of how they present information and they roll over to this pressure from the left. You know, we saw all these central narratives from last year, you know, whether it was the Hunter Biden story, the Wuhan lab leak, the, you know, the clearing of Lafayette Square, um, the Afghan bounty story. I mean, there were all these major, major stories in the middle of an election year that we now know uh, six months in the next year were provably false and not just provably false. But, you know, in some of these cases, you know, Facebook banned any discussion of these ideas broadly. Um, I mean, it resulted in actual censorship. So we need to really think about, um, you know, fixing this, this system. And I, I don't, I don't know what to do. I mean, obviously all of the pressure, you know, is coming from the left in terms of how news coverage happens and, you know, and the media is inherently left. So they, they play along with it, but it's, it's, it's doing a disservice to citizens trying to make politically informed decisions. That's for sure. On that sunny note, we'll take a quick break and have more with Mark Hemingway right after this. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton. And I want to transition to a couple other points around the world with our guest, Mark Hemingway, a senior writer at Real Clear Investigations. Uh, years ago, Mark, you wrote about Robert Malley, who is sort of the Iran czar, among other things, for the Biden administration. And it was a similar it was in a similar role with respect to uh, the Obama campaign at the very least, and probably also influenced pretty significantly in the administration as well. Uh, tell us a little bit about how Mali's ideology impacts U.S.-Iran policy. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, what we saw in the Obama administration was a frankly inexplicable attempt to um, make nice with Iran, a country that we've had, you know, overtly hostile relations with since, you know, gosh, the late 1970s. Um, and I, I don't quite, you know, really understand the rationale of it um, in the sense that, uh, you know, they, they want to like, completely remake the power balance in the, in, the, in the Middle East in terms of, you know, while we have this, you know, large number of, of Sunni countries um, that are, you know, have been allied with the U.S. for decades, somehow that they wanted to shift everything away from that um, and toward Iran. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, obviously the tension there being that Iran is, is, is sort of a Shia, is sort of a, is, is, is a Shia a country um, that, you know, is, is at you know, definite odds and has, in fact, been at war with some of these Sunni countries. Um, never mind, that's also the leading exporter of, of terrorism around the world. Um, and I, I can only think of like Mali and, and a lot of the, the, the sort of elements of the blob in DC that are very pro-Ran and pro-Ran deal, uh, they have this, I think, very Pollyanna-ish um, uh, left-wing desire to be, you know, peacemakers. And they refuse to accept the real politics situation of the Middle East, where, you know, these are countries that are driven by Islamic, you know, law and principles, and they have a very sort of you know, brutish and to the point of human nature, and they exercise their power in crude and, and awful ways. But, you know, it's not like Iran is an exception to that. Um, but somehow these people have talked themselves into thinking that um, Iran will, you know, somehow be more amenable to, uh, um, I don't know, to, you know, actual peace. And I just don't understand it. I mean, it's really sort of this idealized version of of Iran. And, and I think that Iran has 
also done a really good job of, you know, speaking out of both sides of their mouth in terms of Iran has you know, people in Washington that are very good at playing into these instincts of, well, you know, if you just, you know, got the Sunni countries off our back, you know, we would, you know, be um, very amenable to all U.S. foreign policy. And I just don't think that's the case at all. I mean, you have to be inherently suspicious of everyone in the Middle East to <laughs> be the appropriate response. I've I've got a theory, which is that their ideology is one. It's the international version of affirmatively advancing equity to right the historical wrongs. You have to make Iran, the world's leading state sponsor of jihad, the strong horse in the region. It's hard to imagine that anyone could think this would actually lead to peace, making the world's greatest exporter, as you noted, of terrorism, the dominant power in that region. Before I let you go really quickly, you've written in the past and I've I've linked to it probably almost every time I've written about this subject uh, about the media taking money from Chinese Communist Party mouthpiece publications, running their inserts and the like, how pervasive or how compromised is our corporate media with respect to China? Um, you know, I assume every industry at this point in time is compromised in significant ways with China, unfortunately. I mean, you know, obviously some industries are more susceptible than others. You know, entertainment and sports obviously have come to the forefront in terms of what we're aware of. Um, but, you know, academia, I mean, there's been a steady stream of press releases out of the Justice Department for you know, a couple of years now where, you know, various research scientists and other people at university are, are doing inappropriate things with China. And obviously, one of the ways they got their tentacles in the U.S. media was to, you know, spend these, you know, must what must be millions of dollars to, um, you know, said, put, put these special advertising inserts and other things into um, um into major U.S. newspapers like the Washington Post and the New York Times. And actually, Russia's done a similar thing as well. Um, and what I don't understand is why <laughs> this hasn't been just so roundly condemned. Um, I mean, it, it's really you know, horrifying. And there was a time there for a while in Washington, D.C., where um, uh, Russian state media had bought a radio station, was basically blasting anti-NATO propaganda uh, over the D.C. airwaves on the FM channel dial and it's crazy uh, people need really need to speak up about our media being compromised because you know i mean it's propagandistic enough with our own politics but you know to have china and iran and russia and all these other countries you know so easily exploit um, our media is, is even more terrifying we've been speaking with mark hemingway senior writer at real clear investigations mark thanks so much for coming on the program thanks for having me Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. We're just about to close out for today. So I wanted to hit a few interesting stories that caught my eye across the wire over the last couple of days. And obviously, wokeism has been a huge theme of this week. It's it's unfortunately the theme that we're dealing with as a country, uh, that we're suffering under as a country as it pervades every aspect of our society. And recently, a whistleblower apparently delivered a letter It was collected by Senator Tom Cotton, I believe, as well as Congressman Dan Crenshaw, indicating that a giant Black Lives Matter flag was allowed to be prominently displayed at the barracks of a U.S. naval installation in Africa. And actually, I guess this makes sense, given that we know that the military has been endorsing critical race theorists and so-called anti-racists in terms of literature, that those who are supposed to be defending us and protecting our liberties ought to be reading for leadership. I mean, maybe in some ways it's a perfect living representation of what we're dealing with right now that a military base actually or a naval base rather was flying a BLM flag. But you have to understand what the BLM ideology is. And we all know what it is. 
it's racial Marxism masquerading as caring about the justice, justice for individuals and protecting people against racism and bigotry. And that is the gene, that is the clever aspect of actually all of these related ideologies of the BLM worldview of critical race theory and the like. They wrap themselves in virtue and being just and being good and moral. And again, they wield it as a cudgel and they use it as a shield to defend themselves from the truth, which is that they're trying to use race to impose their radically leftist agenda on the country. That's all this is. It's a clever ploy. It's a very clever ploy. And as our guests have alluded to during this show today, it's very hard to argue against it when to argue against their worldview is to be racist and bigoted and hateful. But every once in a while, the drop, the mask drops on organizations like Black Lives Matter. And there was some audio recently unearthed from Patrice Cullors, who, as many people know, is one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter Global Network, recently stepped away from it amid news reports about the fact that, well, you know, this Marxist, trained Marxist, so-called, I think in her own words, or in one of her comrades' words, has purchased millions of dollars worth of properties and held these very opulent junkets for her fellow activists and the like. In 2015, she said, Palestine is our generation, South Africa, and if we don't step up boldly and courageously to end the imperialist project that's called Israel, we're doomed. Let me repeat that. End the imperialist project that's called Israel. That... Corporations across this country, the entire Democrat Party, some Republicans who bent the knee to BLM, this is the movement they bent the knee for. And it's not just Israel, of course. It's about destroying America. If you look at the backgrounds of the individuals who have led these various Black Lives Matter organizations, if you look at the positions they've espoused, the world leaders they've stood with in solidarity, the groups that they came from and were indoctrinated under, These are as anti-American, as radical as they get. As I'm sure you know, the platforms that have been scrubbed have called for essentially eroding the nuclear family, fighting capitalism, fighting everything that we know and love, everything that's essential to the American way of life. And it's worth noting, I wrote about this five years ago, the anti-Semitism inherent to the Black Lives Movement, which is, of course, a proxy for its general anti-Judeo-Christian Western civilization orientation. The BLM-backed Movement for Black Lives platform back six years ago said this, The U.S. justifies and advances the global war on terror via its alliance with Israel and is complicit in the genocide taking place against the Palestinian people. U.S. requires Israel to use 75% of all military and receives receives aid it receives to buy U.S.-made arms. Consequently, every year, billions are funneled from taxpayers to hundreds of arms corporations, etc., etc., It not only diverts much-needed funding from domestic education and social programs, but it makes U.S. citizens complicit in the abuses committed by the Israeli government. Israel is an apartheid state with over 50 laws on the books that sanction discrimination against the Palestinian people. Just to stop for a second, the Palestinian Arab leaders themselves run an apartheid state. In fact, there is no dissenting movement there. There's no protections for minorities. Obviously, most of the Islamic world... You look at the governmental systems, the Sharia systems imposed 
They are effectively apartheid states. But of course, you'll never hear the social justice warrior say a damn word about that. Because again, it's all about the great state in America and the little state in Israel. And I think it's worth noting while we're on this topic, and this is, of course, in part the theme of my book, American Ingrate, Ilhan Omar and the Progressive Islamist Takeover of the Democrat Party. BLM tweeted during the most recent Israeli-Arab infighting. Black Lives Matter stands in solidarity with Palestinians. We're a movement committed to ending settler colonialism in all forms and will continue to advocate for Palestinian liberation, i.e. destruction of Israel. And it's overtaking by the Palestinian Arabs, even though they don't say that. It's worth noting this history here, and I have this in my book. In January 1969, ask yourself who would have written this. Quote, Israel is the expression of colonial coloni- colonization based on a theocratic, racist, and expansionist system and of Zionism and colonialism. Sounds like it could have been written by any of our leftists today, right? That was Fatah, Central Committee, in January 1969. And here's what Yasser Arafat says, and I think this perfectly encapsulates why the left, why and how the left and the Islamists get along so well, and why ultimately they loathe us the most because it's conservative Americans that are the greatest stumbling block to them achieving their totalitarian designs. Arafat said around the same time, our struggle is part and parcel of every struggle against imperialism, injustice, and oppression in the world. It is the part of the world revolution which aims at establishing social justice and liberating mankind. Social justice. That's what all the world's tin pot, totalitarian, tyrants, Islamists, strongmen. It's always about liberation and social justice. A couple other stories that I want to hit real quick. Byron York out in his newsletter today, his daily newsletter, brings up this sort of double standard that's being raised between the left's treatment of Russiagate, which we touched on before briefly, and its seeming lack of interest in the origins of the coronavirus. York writes, where's the big screaming water wall wall effort to find out what happened at Wuhan? It's nowhere to be found, which leads to the question, why are the people who couldn't get enough investigations of the 2016 Russia affair so relatively incurious about investigating the origins of a disease that had vastly more consequential effects? Except, as we noted before, that the effect of Russiagate was to kill any effort of the Trump administration to work with Russia in areas of common interest that now progressives call for in spades, which Trump was doing for purely strategic and national security grounds. But leave all that aside for a second. The answer, unfortunately, York argues, is Donald Trump. In 2017, there was agreement between Democrats and Republicans. Russia's interference needed to be investigated. There was bipartisan action. Then it morphed into a get Trump effort and the investigations mushroomed. Now there's a topic of enormous global importance. In addition to 600,000 Americans, COVID's killed more than 3.2 million people worldwide. And the Biden administration is kind of sort of pursuing an investigation. Does anyone doubt that it should be doing much, much more? Well, again, York cites Trump, but I would argue something else, and that is U.S. complicity, again, the ruling class's complicity and collusion with communist China, in effect and in sometimes in actuality. That is really the core scandal, again, of not wanting to get to the bottom of lab leak. And that argument ought to be put forth, and it ought to be put forth forcefully. Why don't they want to know the origins of coronavirus? It wasn't just about destroying Trump's effort to get reelected. It's bigger than that. It's about covering up U.S. complicity and working with China in all of these strategically sensitive areas, funneling money 
into the WIV, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And it's a scandal of not wanting to get down to the bottom of it, in effect, in advancing a Chinese information effort to make it seem as if this emanated from a, a market and not from its own, at best, gross incompetence and corruption. At worst, intentional effort to foist this pandemic on the world. And of course, their acts subsequently all helped accelerate the spread of that pandemic around the world. So why don't they want to know? Because the finger comes back to them in some ways. And they're afraid to pursue a communist China that they're all in bed with. That's a national disgrace. It's a huge scandal. It's a scandal that isn't spoken about, but it has to be. And lastly, real quick, and later in the week, we'll talk a bit about this critical race theory being under siege, according to leftist publications. And it is funny to watch them squirm as the truth of CRT gets exposed as the racial Marxism that it is. Yet at the same time, look at the chasm between where the American people are and the people who are funded by our taxpayer dollars are with respect to this. New survey indicates that although many have not heard of critical race theory, more um, one in 10 teachers have a negative view of it, while three times as many teachers hold a positive view, in the Federalist words, of the effort to institutionalize anti-white racism. Findings show a majority of respondents had a neutral, positive, or unsure view of critical race theory. More than one-third of teachers have not heard of it, 40% of parents in the same boat. Little more than one-quarter of parents and teachers, respectively, were unsure if they had heard of critical race theory. But teachers are way more sympathetic, obviously, to CRT than the American people. And that's a major problem for all of our future generations. All right, over the next couple of days, we'll talk about these and many related issues, the president's ongoing trip overseas. We'll talk about critical race theory. We'll talk about the Babylon Bee's effort to take on the New York Times, an exceptional victory, and so much more. This has been Ben Weingarten in for Buck Sexton on the Buck Sexton Show. Thanks so much again for listening, for all of your support. And we'll finish up strong these next couple of days with some exceptional guests to come. Be well, America.